You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google and Alphabet. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on Theory and Practice. So Alex, for this episode, I got to interview Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google and Alphabet. So what did you talk about? With the beauty of podcasting, my friend, I have the whole thing right here. The first thing we talked about was his path to where he is now. Thank you for joining us today, Eric. Uh, Really excited to chat with you. To kind of get things going, would you mind just kind of walking us through a little bit your career path? I know that you started programming when you were 14. Maybe you could take it from there and, and kind of walk us through some of the highlights. But when I was uh, a young man in high school, I guess I would have been called a computer nerd, but we didn't have that term back then. My father got me a computer, and then I just sort of self-taught around programming, and I just loved it. And I spent years in high school programming, and then when I went to college, I went in as an architect, but I quickly switched to what I thought was computer science. Computer science didn't exist, and so I did electrical engineering. Excellent. And then from there, you went and did your PhD at Berkeley, is that correct? Yeah. So by the time I graduated from college, there was a PhD program, and I ended up going to Berkeley as a computer scientist, uh, where I ended up working at Bell Labs and Xerox Park, which were the two premier research labs of the time. And much of what we use today was invented in one of those two places. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were originally in operating systems. That was the focus of your PhD, correct? Yeah. It's best to understand my computer science as a systems person. Um, At the time, operating systems and languages were the sexy stuff. And so I worked on operating systems. And in fact, my PhD was on distributed network programming. In other words, how do you organize software projects to develop them in a network? And it was the first of such an analysis. And when you finished your PhD, I imagine you probably had a little bit of a decision to make about whether to kind of stay on the more academic research path or make a decision towards more on the industry side. Can you walk through kind of how you made that decision and what led to it? My father was a university professor, as was my grandfather, and I'd always assumed that I would become a university professor, especially given that computer science was so interesting. But even more interesting to me what was going on in startups. Uh, This is at a time when IBM was the dominant force, and we all thought that what IBM's architecture represented was evil, and that there was a new format coming along. In this case, it was what you now know as distributed computing and Unix, and so we felt very strongly about it. So it made perfect sense for me when I got my PhD to go to Sun Microsystems, which was the leader in that technology at the time. And what is the open source movement today started off as the Unix free licensing movement 40 years ago. The same people, same principles, same rules. So what was evil about IBM back then? Well, again, this is a a young man's version and not necessarily completely accurate, but the traditional computer industry was very, very much stuck in the model of mainframe computing, which was highly inflexible. And we saw the time sharing movement, and in particular, the what you would now call open source time sharing, the ability to get software and to modify it as really empowering a completely different generation of people. And at the time, it was essentially impossible to get such things to happen. At the same time, the personal computer came along, which was a power shift in the IT departments and corporations in a profound way, then followed by the web and the use of internet and corporations. And that's where all of this started. 
at the time, there was no notion of a consumer business for computers. The concept that consumers, the average human being, would be using a computer was inescapably unimpossible to understand. So, you know, going back to the open source, you know, I hadn't expected to talk about this, but I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on what were the kind of changes in the ecosystem that led to the creation of an open source business model? Because it's not obvious that one could make money off of open source software. Again, it's pretty clear to me that the proprietary models have historically done much better. So I grew up in a model where you had software that was licensed but controlled and the source code was kept proprietary. Our idea was that the source code, when shared, could enable a platform, it could allow creative people to add and so forth. You see this today in the evolution of the Android system, Chrome, Linux itself, those sorts of things. And there's no question that the majority of software is now running around was based on some open source project. A simple example is that if you use a Mac or a PC, underneath there is a whole bunch of software that's been either derived from or copied from or inspired by the open source movement. Indeed, the most popular thing that happened in the open source movement is the development of the language C, which is used in literally every device you ever encounter. You know, it's interesting, going back to Android, I once heard you say that that was your greatest or among your greatest successes at Google. Kind of say a little bit more about that. When I was at Sun, we had hopes of having a million users. When we got to Google, the concept was, how could we get to a billion users? And with a billion users, you can have a huge impact, but you can always monetize that somehow. So I like to define these quests as, let's figure out a way to get to a billion of some kind of usage. Today, Google has eight or so such platforms, but each of them was hard fought. In the case of Android, the key idea was that you would take an open source piece of software that solved the problems of telephony, which included things like the modems, at, which at the time were not licensable, and give that in a package to phone manufacturers who would then compete with each other, bring the prices down, and bring smartphones to humanity. And we achieved that objective. Today, Android has something on the order of a couple billion platforms in use with a great deal of growth ahead of it. Why was it a success for Google? What did Google get out of it? Well, many people have said, why would you give such a thing that's so valuable away? But that means that they don't understand what the strategy is. When you give software away, you get the help of many, many other people. And when I say give away, I mean freely license under appropriate uh, IP licensing and that sort of thing. But as a result, you get an enormous explosion of creativity. Now, how does Google benefit? Well, there are many ways, but the easiest way to understand is if you're an Android customer, you're much more likely to be using Google services, which include our ad systems. Fair enough. All right, so switching gears, you've been called one of the great leaders of geeks. And at some point, you made the transition from being a geek yourself to being a manager of geeks and then one of the great leaders of geeks. Kind of walk through that evolution. And did you find it hard to transition from being an individual contributor? Well, when I think about my own career, I started programming at 14 and I finished at 28. And at 28, I thought it would be more interesting to manage programmers. And the key thing to understand as a manager is you're not doing the work, they're doing the work. And executives get confused. They somehow think they're in charge, but in fact, the employees are in charge. So what I figured out is that if you basically set yourself as a manager or a leader to solve their problems, one, they'll work harder, and two, you might actually get what you want done. So when I went to Sun, of course, there was no management training or anything like that at the time. I set out to sort of figure out what they needed and solve their problems. And I think that's a good philosophy for leaders today. Many, many people want these powerful positions that they see in the press. The way to get those positions is to solve the problems of the people who work for you, and the people who work for you better be at least as smart as you are. 
So if you hire really well, and there's a whole now literature about how to do that, and then you focus on making them more productive, you'll do great. Do you miss the time as a technical person? When I think back to my 20s, when I was learning all about, you know, graphics and networking and data processing and operating systems, how to build, you know, compilers, how to build editors and so forth, I use that knowledge today in one form or another every day. It's a little bit like physicists who learned physics when they were 20 and now they're 60. The physics is still the same. So that foundation of computer science, and computer science can be understood as symmetry, scalability, replication, those have served me incredibly well. The thing that wasn't present at the time were things like user interface design, some of the newer sort of individual technologies that people are using, but I can learn those pretty quickly. So I have been very, very well served by my programming background, and I found it perfectly satisfactory to hang out with programmers as opposed to having doing my own programming. I think of myself as programming what they do through them, not directly. And, you know, if you look at AI today, the transition that programmers are going to have to make is you're going to have to go from static programming, which is what I did, where you sort of tell the computer exactly what to do, to teaching the computer how to learn. Okay, so in that sense, while it's programming, there's a learning component that the program is doing as opposed to the programmer, if you see the distinction. Fair enough. And how do we build that next generation of programmers? Well, one of the things about programming that's always been true is that the best programmers are 10 times better than the normal programmers. And there are a number of things that seem to be true of them. They have unusually good ability to do deep thinking. They have unusually good symbolic reasoning, and they have unusually good memories. They can remember what the space that they're operating in, and they're quick. All of those are properties that the greatest mathematicians and physicists and computer scientists all have. It seems to be, well, I'm going to use the general term math skills. The stuff is really hard. When I sit down with our AI researchers today at the Broad and at Google and so forth, all I can tell you is they strike me as math geniuses we're fortunate enough to have working on these problems. So the key basically is to hire smart people. And to develop more of them. There's a lot of people who believe that the top candidates, the smartest sort of undergraduates going into colleges, are now more drawn to computer science than, say, physics and math, partly because there's more employment opportunities, but also because the computer science field is no longer computer science by itself. It's now computer science and biology, computer science and manufacturing, computer science and human factors, computer science and cities. So if you look at biology and genetics, the transformation that has occurred in the field has been extraordinary. And that transformation is fundamentally because the biology world, in my term, is very squishy. And the only way to understand that squishiness is to use big data analytics, which is, again, a really hard technical problem. The gains that we're going to see in biology from this kind of work are going to be profound over the next decade. Uh, I'm very, very proud to be a little bit part of that, and I can just taste the wins. So how did you get involved in the life sciences? What was the point in your career where you decided to start spending more time learning that domain and understanding what made it tick? Well, many people had been talking about biology as the next frontier, and I didn't really understand it until I met Eric Lander and started getting to know the Broad. Um, and the Broad, of course, is the leading research institution in the world on genetics and those sorts of processes. And what I liked about the Broad was not just the science is really good, but the structure is really good because it's a partnership with a number of hospitals and universities. And by virtue of that partnership, they actually have an independent source of money and they have sort of competition to see who can get into the labs and so forth. So I know it produces the best possible human performance. And therefore, I spent lots of time listening to these people to try to understand what they're actually doing. To me, the most interesting union is that once you move from the analog to the digital world is just a math problem. 
and there's a great deal of progress in moving from analog to digital, the most obvious being sequencing. But there are many, many new sensors and ways of watching biology that people are inventing. All of that data gets thrown into a big database. There are incredibly clever algorithms that people are coming up to use in those cases. You know, a lot of what you talked about was more on the research side. I know that you're also on the board of Mayo Clinic. How do you experience the clinical side? Frankly, the problem with the medical profession is there are so many problems it takes too long to discuss it. If you look at the medical system in America, it was never designed in a way that you and I would sort of agree is rational. The incentives are misaligned, the databases are poor, and so forth. I believe that because of the gains in machine learning and data analysis, we have an opportunity to rethink some of those underlying assumptions. And let me tell you what I want. When I go to the doctor, I want them to be able to give them the equivalent of a login and a password for me. And when they log in, I want them to be able to see all of my medical data from everywhere. In other words, when I go to a doctor, and again, this is all perfectly legal under the HIPAA laws and in fact required in some cases, I want to be able to hand all that information to a professional. That's step one. The second thing is that if I find myself in a hospital, especially in an unannounced way, I want a computer to be able to say, here's Eric's history, here's what we think is going on, and give advice using deep data science, doing deep machine learning, doing deep predictive analytics and AI in general to predict what the doctor should do next. I think that this will lead to a revolution in healthcare in terms of productivity, and most important, my health and your health and everyone's. And what's nice about healthcare is that improvements in efficiency also are aligned with improvements in health. So basically, if there's fewer operations, quicker diagnosis, more accurate diagnosis, everyone wins. The system makes more money. There's more money to invest in research. The patient is obviously better off, and the doctors get more done. And there's a huge problem in our country of doctor burnout. Something like half the doctors are all burned out. They spend two-thirds of their time filling out forms. They complain a great deal about the digital world. It's like we're half done. We managed to get the computers into the hospitals, but we didn't get them integrated into the workflow of the doctor in a way that makes sense to the doctor. I'd like to work on that for the next decade. How much of the challenges that we face are technological? How much are misaligned incentives? And how much are just a lack of skills in the medical profession? Well, a couple of things I'd say. The first is there's plenty of money. The medical system, which complains about not having any money, has roughly twice the budget on a per capita basis as the European countries with the same outcome. So we know we have lots of money. And the second is there's an acute need, right? So there's no issue around motivating people. I think the real issue here is people have not thought about this as a digital problem and as a platform problem. These are amazingly charismatic and talented people who are using intuition rather than science to solve problems. So let's take the EMRs and the EHRs. Let's go through them and analyze them. Why don't we de-identify data and then use that for research purposes? I'm told that there's 999 people who are health-wise identical to me, but I don't know them. But a computer with all of that data in it could say, you know, Eric, you actually might be at risk for this odd thing. Maybe you didn't know about it. And again, big data can discover that. We should be able, over the next decade, to build systems that are both human-friendly, that is, for the doctors, for the patients, that really help, but also are far more accurate. That has to be good. And if you look at the demographics of the West, China, you name it, the percentage of people who are getting older is increasing compared to the number of people working very dramatically. So the healthcare burden on every country is going to go through the roof in the next 10 to 20 years. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, the only solution that we're going to have to solve that burden problem. So 
Training the next generation of machine learning algorithms to do decision support will require aggregating data sets in order to train the models. How do we get to data sharing in healthcare, especially when so much of it is locked up in institutions? Well, my preference, and this is my personal view, is that we have opt-out policies. So when a normal person goes in, they have an opportunity to opt out of the data collection, but otherwise that data is by custom made available for research purposes to try to make the system stronger. That's my preference. I think it's important that people have a choice, and I think it's important that it be an informed choice, but I think we are better if we change these systems so it's relatively easy to get that data for research purposes, and research purposes only, I want to emphasize, because again, collectively, we're stronger. With respect to the existing data institutions, a number of people are working pretty hard to get de-identified data there are large corpuses of this data that would really help us. There are also projects, um, Verily, which is a Google subsidiary, has a project called Baseline, and Baseline is an attempt on a go-forward basis to collect a great deal of information about 10,000 or so people. There are other studies which have similar, even longer-term things, but we need the data. We need to respect people's privacy. We need to follow the agreements at the time, but I would encourage people to collect much more data as quickly as possible. It will literally save lives. Going back to the opt-out, I know that you spent many years in the Obama administration on the Presidential Commission for the Advancements of Science and Technology. Out the other side of that experience, do you feel that legislation is the right way to get to data sharing in medicine? Well, believe it or not, people have spent the last 15 plus years working on legislation to get data sharing happening, and it's not happened. If you look at the HIPAA laws, the provider is required to give you your data, and yet it's very difficult for Anthony or Eric to click on a button and get the data that you need. So I think there is an enforcement issue of the law. I don't think there's a new law necessary. I think that we should collectively assemble ourselves as a goal that we have all the authorities we need to get to the point where when I go to the doctor, I can give him or her the equivalent of a login name and a password, which will give them access to all of my healthcare data and force the providers under the HIPAA laws to make that available to me under my direction. That is both technically possible and it's also legally permitted. That would change everything because not only would I own my own data, and this is, again, under my control and exclusively under my control, it would allow people to look longitudinally at my history. I think that's how we solve the data sharing problem. The original designs, just as an aside, 15 years ago, they anticipated that all the data providers would have this interoperable framework, uh, which you know as FHIR and so forth and so on, but they're not complete. The incentives for that data sharing were poor. There was no particular reason to do the sharing. But who has an interest in sharing all the data? Me as a patient. I want the best health care. And let me tell you that when the patients of the United States lobby for access to the information that they are already legally capable of getting, I think we'll get there. You know, many have pointed to the tragedy that we can't donate our data. Uh, we can donate our organs or our blood, but our data is somehow not yet there. It sounds a little bit like that's what you're describing. Well, I'm happy to donate this stuff when I'm dead. I'm much more interested in when I'm alive, right? I'm perfectly happy to give you all my data when I'm kaput. <laughs> but between now and then, I want better health care because I can present my history. The funny thing is I went to one provider, and I'm sitting there, and they, they had done an MRI, and this person couldn't find it. So I'm sitting there with him, and this is a very smart doctor, going through their entire IT system inside their hospital saying, where is it? Where is it? Well, this is crazy. The computer should say, Eric has shown up. He's got this problem. Let me surface his records for you. Just think about how much more productive we could make doctors with this kind of an approach. 
you know, let me go back to the training and skill side. Part of what's missing is also going to be training a generation of healthcare professionals that are conversant with the next generation of computer scientists. One of the things you did very successfully at Google was build interdisciplinary teams. Any insights learned from that process? Well, I, I do want to quibble with you a little bit. I think that computers should disappear into the walls in the sense that doctors should not have to be programmers to understand how to use their system. It should just work. When you think about modern smartphones, they work pretty well, right, for normal people. They don't need specialized training. Long ago, did we build systems that only people like ourselves could build. So I think we need to first make these systems be essentially an app, one button, one touch, one login kind of solutions. And I think the technology exists to do that. With respect to the research side, which I think is where the real gains are going to be, there's a new generation of undergraduates, graduate students, and researchers who are literally bilingual. They're interested in computer science, they're well-trained, they're super smart, but they also understand the brain, they understand genetics, they understand these other fields because they're naturally interested in it. And the more of this multidisciplinary education, all the way through research, PhDs, awards, and so forth, the stronger that we can do. In my case, I announced something called the Schmidt Science Fellows with the Rhodes Trust to try to find people who are interdisciplinary and who want to shift their job for a year. We've just started. We'll see how well it goes. So I'm doing my part. I think everybody needs to focus on the fact that computer science as a standalone is not nearly as interesting as when it's applied to some big societal problem. There are plenty of ones also in law and education besides medicine. So there's plenty of things to work on. So when you think about what group is going to create the new suite of technologies to power medicine and research in the life sciences. I could see three possibilities. It could come from more traditional medical institutions or biomedical research institutions. It could come from the great technology companies of our day, or it could be a new generation of organizations that's not yet been born. Which one of the three do you think is most likely? Well, historically, the incumbents don't invent these things because the incumbents are busy. They have their own problems, and they typically they miss the next wave. There are a gazillion small startups that are doing pieces of the vision that I described. And I would expect that some of them will become financially successful and then eventually will acquire, gobble up, be merged with, et cetera, to build much larger tools companies. So it makes sense to me that you'll have the EHR companies will expand into this area. You'll also have clever startups that start off in one area and they'll broad the other. And then in five or 10 years, you'll have a relatively smaller number, but larger than two or three, of companies that are the sort of leading providers of the tools and technologies in this area on the healthcare side. Uh, on the research side, I think it's going to continue to be the top research institutions. I worked at Bell Labs uh, when it was the premier research institution in the world. I worked at Xerox Park when it was the premier institution in what it did in the world. Today, the Broad is such an institution. And these institutions last for a, a generation or two. They're not short-lived. So my guess is that places like the Broad and a few others, there's a few other extraordinary labs, will continue to attract the best and the brightest. And I think it, it's important to understand that you need to do both. You need to fund the Broad and its partners and so forth. You need to fund university research, but you also need to fund the startups and the people who are trying to commercialize this technology, because ultimately that's where the real jobs will be, where the real scale will be. In other words, I can build as many tools as I want, but unless there's a revenue model to sell it, the company can't get big enough. You need a way to sell these things. You know, you brought up Bell Labs and Park. Those were both organizations that lived within the great technology companies of their day. Do you think that the next generation of Bell Labs and Parks will exist as nonprofit organizations, or will they live within today's great technology organizations? So leadership appears to be a function of scale, size, and opportunity. 
So in Google's case, at some point, we decided we wanted to do things broader than just search. So we had a big debate, and Larry and Sergey ultimately settled on Google X and now X, which is our innovation arm. And their job is to build businesses from crazy new ideas, and they have a, a particular way of doing it. I think that's clearly a successful model. There are clearly models like the Broad model, and they're clearly university models. So there are three right there. There are probably going to be some other ones, but there's no substitute for elite teams that derive out of some university research that figure out a way to change the world. So going back to the life sciences, do you think that we'll see a company like Google emerge in the next, let's say, decade that has the same kind of societal impact and the same technological expertise, but focused on the problems of medicine? So on the medical side and on the health side, it is a regulated business. So part of the reason that you don't see the internet success stories is because it just takes 10 plus years to go from invention to commercialization. I think the average was like nine and a half years. That's just a very different sort of time scale. In our world, we think of it as a year, a year or two years. There it's a 10-year world. So the question to me is, can we build businesses that are not in this regulated side of healthcare in the 10-year cycle? Can we do things that are faster FDA approval or don't require FDA approval that really solve problems? I'm going to argue to you at the moment that the ability to do integrated health, that is the ability to take all this data and aggregate it in interesting ways, is such an opportunity. But I can't prove it because we haven't built it yet. It just seems to me that if people saw the kind of gains in terms of savings as well as healthcare prescriptions and their efficiency better and it were more integrated, that would be a pretty big franchise. We just haven't built it yet as an industry. Switching gears a little bit, if you were graduating from a PhD in computer science today, what would you go into? Well, I'm a systems person, so the important thing to know is that I would work on AI or AGI. There is the, what is called narrow AI, which is the kind of AI we're talking about where you go in and solve a major problem. Or the idea, which is still a research idea, to begin to develop general intelligence among computers, which has all sorts of opportunities and issues. I would be in one of those two camps, depending on my ability at the time and my sort of ability to sort of play at this level. To me, those are the most interesting because they're the ones that can have the biggest cross-sector impact. A small AI team working in narrow AI can make a significant contribution to the cure of cancer, can really help with respect to hospital admissions and treatment can discover new drugs. Five or 10 people can have that kind of leverage. You know, and what an incredible opportunity as a young person to do that if that were in front of me today. Along those lines, how long do you think it'll be before we see the rise of true general AI? Many people have discussed this question, and the blunt answer is no one has any idea because we haven't a definition of AGI. What most people believe is that this is a 10 to 15-ish year problem. In other words, it's well beyond our ability to forecast today. My personal view is that we're going to make fantastic progress using the kind of machine learning and deep data pattern work that we're doing, but that we're going to have some challenges, that the, the nature of curiosity, the nature of creativity is more than just a pattern matching problem. And we're going to need some new inventions, some new ideas, some new algorithms. And there are people working on those that might actually work. Where do you think the next generation of breakthroughs will happen? On the one hand, you could imagine that in order to do the highest level of AI work, you need to be at a place like Google or Amazon, where you have access to all of this compute. On the other hand, others might say that what's missing is mathematical or computational insights, which could come from anywhere. Which side are you on? Well, it's always a bit of both. If you go back to Jeff Hinton and the original development of what is now deep learning, 
He spent on the order of 25 years toiling with a small number of graduate students trying to get all of it right. And now it's, of course, exploded and he's a hero, uh, both in the United States and in Canada, because of what he invented. So I think we'll see some of both. One of the things to understand about the AI world, at the moment anyway, it is sensitive to training data. So you need to get a large collection of training data to solve a problem. That tends to favor established organizations that have a lot of data or people who can figure out a way to license it. So that would argue that the bigger institutions are likely to lead there. However, the notion of discovery that I was discussing with you earlier can occur anywhere. And furthermore, the barrier to entry in terms of big data systems is the lowest it's ever been. You can, with a little bit of money, end up with a Google Cloud account and start doing all your algorithms. And indeed, we make the software that you would use free, so you don't even have to pay for it. So get started. Take your idea and see how far you can go. So, you know, at the start of the podcast, you talked about open source and how transformative that was. In the AI era, is open data going to play the same role? The problem with open data is that you really have to respect the data rights of the data, right, and whatever the restrictions were. So I think it's fair to say that there will always be open data projects. Uh, An example would be the ImageNet database. There are other classification databases that are sort of being generated that are open and they're freely licensed. And those are very helpful because it allows the industry to have a common metric for progress. Part of the reason that computer imaging became so successful is the ImageNet was a clear arbiter of progress and everybody was competing to do the best on ImageNet. So I can imagine that the same thing will occur, for example, in biology, that they'll become uh, a cellular database that's interesting of something that people care about and then people will compete to get the best algorithms. The majority of data is going to come with rights and restrictions and won't be open data. So I think the answer is super important, but the majority of data will not be there. Fair enough. Along with machine learning, the other great technological breakthrough of our era is cloud computing. What are your perspectives on how that's changing the ecosystem? Well, for me, it's very strange because I grew up with the computer I was using next to me and the server down the hallway. One day I walked into one of the programmers at Google and I said, well, have you ever visited your computer? And they said, no, why would I? It didn't even occur to this generation to go physically see what they're doing. And to me, that is a sea change. Today, you can build cloud computing systems that are flexible with respect to the amount of data and the number of processors used, and they can actually adjust based on loan. This is a huge breakthrough. So when you have a dynamic process, you know, something happens in the morning, but not in the evening, or there's an emergency or so forth, the system can expand and contract to provide the necessary answers. Think of how powerful that is in, say, healthcare, where the needs and the scalability are fundamental because, you know, things happen, accidents happen, emergencies happen. So to me, what cloud computing has done is it's both lowered the cost of entry, but also giving you a tool that is scalable. So when you ultimately have a billion users and you have enormous numbers of things going on, you know the system won't fall over. My entire career has been nothing, but we built a great demo system and then it fell over at scale. That doesn't happen with cloud computing systems. That's why it's so important. And along with that cloud computing, we and others offer open source software, which gets you halfway there. So literally all the libraries that you need to, for example, do image recognition uh, are there. So let's say you want to do something in uh, pathology or radiology or so forth. The library is all there. All you have to do is get the data, which is not easy, by the way. Get your data, build the classification engine. It will do the algorithms for you. Boy, is that powerful. So Google created many of the technologies that we most associate with cloud computing. For example, MapReduce. Why was it not the earliest creator of a public cloud? I was a CEO at time, and the answer is simple. We were so focused on scaling our core business that we did not have enough machines that we could devote to other tasks. 
and it was more important for us to focus on our core. The beauty of that is our core is incredibly strong. So now we have offerings in the space, which in my humble opinion are far better than the competitors because they've been battle tested at a scale that no one's ever seen before. I see. So it was the internal battle testing that actually hardened it for the rest of the world. Absolutely. And so when you think about sort of the next decade and what will happen in the life sciences, how does cloud play a role in both data sharing as well as decision support and machine learning and things like that? Well, let's use a simple example, uh, genetic information. So these sequencers produce an enormous amount of data, which is historically sitting on some PC in somebody's lab. Why don't we put it into a cloud-based system? As you know, there is a collaboration between the Broad and Google precisely to do this. Put it in there so that tools that are powerful can be applied to it. And even the most expensive tools can actually complete their time in reasonable amount of time in terms of computation. That allows us for better analytics. That model, I think, is going to be reproduced everywhere. When you go into a lab, if there's data in the lab that's not on the cloud, then that's a bug. So if you have a computer there and there's something that's on that computer, there's a pretty good chance that computer will either break or get broken into by somebody you don't want them to break it into. Put it on the cloud. It's, it's always going to be there. It's always safe. It's going to be far more accessible. If you think about it in a university, and think about it as a shared problem. What you want to do is you want to have this data lying around, and you want smart people who are a little bit idle to have a clever idea, and you want to enable them to test their idea while you're sleeping. Literally, I worked really hard on this, I didn't make any progress, and then someone else overnight saw the data, and they had a new insight, and in the morning I woke up, and there's that insight, because they worked all night because they were so compelled by it. That kind of collaboration model is incredibly powerful for moving science forward. So going back to medicine, how long will it be before cloud is where most of the medical data is stored? Well, today, the majority of the medical data in these institutions is not even in the EHR system. It's in other systems that are sitting around in the hospital. And so it's, it's much harder than just taking the EMR, EHR systems and pouring them over to the cloud. And that work is underway. So I think it's reasonable to expect that all the EMR providers will be cloud-based quite soon. It's in their interest. It's less expensive. It gives them lots of flexibility. To me, the more interesting question is, how do we get all the trap data? So the clinical data, the data that's what's going on in the ward and all that, how do we get all that in there too? Because if we had all of that, we'd have a much fuller picture of what's going on in a medical care setting, and that would allow us to do better data analytics, better prediction, and better healthcare. So, you know, many people have said that one of the benefits of cloud is that it turns data sharing from a technologic problem to a simply sociologic one. So do you think that data sharing and data aggregation for medical research and medical care will accelerate as cloud is adopted? I believe that as these tools become approachable to proper doctors, administrators, people who have an interest in the system, and especially the patients, the adoption will be quick. There's evidence that when a tool comes along that really saves lives and that people can comprehend, they'll adopt it fairly quickly. So if your goal is simply to take the data and reformat it and retarget it in some way, that's not very useful. If your goal is to take the data and then solve a problem that was never solved before that's important, you'll get fairly rapid adoption. And the reason is because people are mission-driven in a good way. Their, their mission is, to, is healthcare. So if you can show them a way right, to make people leave the hospital more healthily, the doctors have a better health outcome, they will adopt it. Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google and Alphabet. Really incredible that you got to have that conversation. I loved it. You know, Alex, you and I both attend this meetup called Hammer and Nail that brings together people with technologies and people with questions to solve. In that spirit, do you have a hammer or a nail that you want to talk about today? Yeah, I do. Uh, I want to talk about the tools of the trade in machine learning. 
I'm not quite sure how many people are going to be curious about this, but I guess for me looking into medicine, I'm always curious about the tools that you have access to. So like you've got, you know, cool stethoscopes and scalpels and sphygmomanometers. But you didn't Ooh, think I was going to know yeah. that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bust out the fancy words. Heck, yeah. Uh, All right. Okay. So we have tools in machine learning and in computer science, and they're kind of as essential to us for getting our jobs done as the tools that you have access to are for doing yours. And there's a lot of kind of words being bandied about, and people are you know, perhaps confusing uh, things that are kind of different in sense. So like one thing that I've heard is people confusing the word TensorFlow for uh, the field of machine learning. So TensorFlow is a tool, like a scalpel, and machine learning is a field of practice or research, just like medicine. Maybe it'd be good to just kind of talk through some of what these tools are, what people reach for, and what the kind of innovations are that are coming down the, down the road. For sure. So what is TensorFlow and why was it such an amazing innovation? So TensorFlow is a software package. It's actually kind of a, an ecosystem of packages for doing machine learning. Right. In the same way that like scalpels, knives, and pliers, or what's the plier thing in surgery called? The clamp. The clamp. All the set of those are like what you use to do surgery amongst okay. many other things. Like TensorFlow has the whole set of those things. It's got like the, so it's the doctor's bag. Exactly. It's the doctor's bag for machine learning. And it's not the only one out there. It's the one that we you know use at Google uh, quite a lot. Like it's been used to train models that are in almost every product that you can touch at, at Google. So correct me if I'm wrong, but... I remember there's a famous quote by Jeff Dean, who is the creator of TensorFlow, correct? Yeah, one, one of many. But yes, he's, he's a, a very, very well-respected engineer at Google, and he's currently um, leads research at Google. I remember a quote from him that is, uh, plan to build something twice, uh, because you will even if you don't plan to. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. TensorFlow is the second evolution in this, uh, right? Absolutely. I don't actually know how far back it goes, because there were machine learning systems before the precursor to TensorFlow, which is called Distbelief. There's a white paper on that. That was a system that Google first used to train really, really, really big neural networks. And it was very important. And it had a problem, which is that it was very, very hard to use. <laughs> okay. uh, and so TensorFlow was put together by a group of incredibly talented engineers over a, a period of many quarters, I think, to basically make machine learning easier to do. And inside of Google, it has succeeded wildly at doing that. And outside of Google, it's kind of commodified. And we've talked about this several times, but it has made machine learning accessible to many, many people. It's not the only tool that's had this effect, but it's had kind of outsized impact in terms of its reach. So I've also heard about PyTorch. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between TensorFlow and PyTorch? There are two different sets of tools that achieve largely the same goal, which is if you want to write down and express machine learning models in code, you know, particularly in Python, and you want to train those models on data, and then you want to deploy those models in different settings, PyTorch and TensorFlow provide the same capabilities. It so happens that TensorFlow was spawned mostly at Google. Uh, it's, it's open source completely, so you can contribute to any part that you like, but it is developed primarily at Google. And PyTorch was kind of birthed and primarily developed at Facebook. And again, it is also a completely open source tool. And that's a really cool feature of all these tools is none of them are closed source. Like you can look at every part of all of them. PyTorch itself spawned from an older project in another language. The language was called Lua, and the project was called Torch. And I used to use this and kind of develop in this language myself uh, when I worked at a, a prior job at Twitter. And uh, this was also originally the language that DeepMind used to develop a lot of their uh, machine learning methods, like their original Atari work that was done uh, using the Lua language in the Torch package. And PyTorch is a porting of a lot of that code into Python, which is a language that people use uh, a lot more frequently than Lua. 
where is the field going? Is there are we going to see uh, the existence of a, a new software package besides these two? Or? Yeah, it's always evolving. And what's the biggest unmet need at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. So PyTorch and TensorFlow themselves are evolving. There's new versions that are adding kind of pretty substantially new features. In many ways, they're converging, like they're beginning to look more and more similar to each other, as in they kind of offer the same ergonomics and features. And you can do the same thing. And if you look at two pieces of code, one written in TensorFlow and one written in PyTorch, they're starting to creep together to basically be kind of indistinguishable in, in many ways, not always. So what's the current challenge? That's a great way to, to phrase the question. The current challenge, I think, is this. Machine learning is becoming so important to so many different facets of kind of large internet scale companies that we're beginning to build specialized hardware to run machine learning models. So these are the TPUs everyone's Exactly. About. So TPUs are Google's specialized hardware for doing machine learning. TPU stands for Tensor Processing Unit. What is a tensor, by the way? We use that to mean an array of numbers that's a rectangle. We've talked about rectangles before. A tensor in math means something different, uh, and we don't mean that meaning. But yeah, so uh, we're building specialized hardware to accelerate the training and then, you know, ultimately like running these models. So like, you know, somebody uploads an image and we want to predict, is there a cat in it? Like there's some server, some computer somewhere that has to do that work. And that's happening on specialized hardware more and more. Programming those chips isn't like you know, swapping some flag sure. in a compiler. It's not, it's not a, a small switch that you make. It can sometimes require you to think like the chip. It can sometimes require you to change how you program uh, your models. And that's, to me, uh, one of the large challenges is how can we effectively take use of, or make use of uh, all of this amazing compute capability? And it's not just Google that's developing these chips. I mean, I think Huawei recently announced that they're doing their own chip Lots of these large internet companies are developing their chips. There's startups that do it. And programming them is this really, really you know, core challenge. So how can we make it easy to do that? So is it fair to say right now it's like we're programming in assembly and what we need are kind of higher level languages like Python for programming the TPUs? The, the situation is a little bit different than that in that we do have high level ways of programming the TPUs, but the abstractions sometimes break. The tools are generally working, but they're suffering under the strain of their own success. And like people are trying to do crazier and crazier stuff with these tools. People are trying to like push the limits in terms of like how fast you can get your models to go. And there's always compromises you make. You know, you don't always get to use like the perfect like demo thing you download from the internet. Like you often have to make these tweaks in order to have these things work really well or work in a new domain. And the strain is becoming such that we're, you know, there's this new wave of tools coming out. So TensorFlow 2.0 has recently been, I think, released in alpha or release candidate one or something like that. There's a new version of PyTorch. There's a new language called Julia. And they're doing some really, really interesting stuff to make computing on kind of exotic hardware easier. And there's a project out of Google that I'm particularly excited about called JAX. And that is basically a project that makes it so that you can use NumPy. And NumPy is uh, the way that people generally do array-based programming in Python. It's been around for a decade or more. A lot of people know it, but it only runs in the CPU. And JAX is a project to, among many other features, have code that's as simple and nice as that actually run on these exotic pieces of hardware. So that's really exciting because the usability win is, is, is pretty clear. You know, everybody's constantly improving. Everybody will benefit from this competition. Uh, and I'm really excited to see where it's going to go next. It's very cool. Part of my understanding of what the revolution of cloud was is that it was commodity hardware, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of 
um, trying to build, you know, specialized file systems with really high IO or things like that. It was like, no, let's just make it commodity and then kind of right. build software on top of it. So I guess two questions as it relates to this. So first, do you think that we're going to go away from commodity hardware and actually see ever greater specialization on the public cloud? Yeah. And then a second kind of related question is a lot of these things like TensorFlow and PyTorch, to what extent are they multi-core and kind of embedded in distributed systems? And to what extent is it actually more scaling up rather than scaling out? So one distinction between kind of cloud commodity hardware where the use case is usually like web servers yeah. and in scientific computing, which is effectively what machine learning is, is you can afford to lose one node, one computer, right? Because you just redirect traffic to another yeah. one. If one of your computers goes down when you're training a neural network, like, you know, you have to start from the beginning again, which yeah. can sometimes cost you weeks, or you have to have checkpointed the model and be able to like pause and restart. So you, you have to program it differently. And Neural networks and scientific computing look more like needing dedicated hardware or hardware that is guaranteed to be up for longer periods of time. Uh, and so that's, that is a real distinction between the kinds of needs in large-scale programming for internet services sure. and for training neural network models. How are we doing in terms of distributing compute, like taking advantage of multiple computers, or do we just need one big computer? This has been going on for some time, and Google, in many ways, was a pioneer in the space. But like, yeah, we, we can split a neural network up across many, many computers. The way that it's kind of commonly done, and this kind of accelerates training, something called asynchronous SGD or all-reduce SGD. What this means is you take your model and uh, you train it with something called stochastic gradient descent. And this basically means... You show your neural network an image or some input, and you see it's just uh, what predicts. It. Exactly, and it's just kind of reacting to the errors that you see in your output and, and updating the parameters to minimize those errors. But you can copy your model a bunch of times, and you can show each copy of the model different images. And oh. then you can gather the updates, yep. and you can average them and apply them, and then recopy the model out to all the nodes. Yep. Yep. That actually does a really, really good job. And that's a way that you can kind of accelerate training and take advantage of multiple computers, you know, pretty straightforward way. And this is something that TensorFlow has been doing for a long time. Lots of software projects have been doing for a long time. This was fascinating. Thanks so much. Uh, I think that's it for today on Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice.com at gv.com.